0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Believe in New York Football podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals and the only place. For every New York football team and their fans. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steven Tino Rodriguez. And welcome back to another edition of the New York Football Podcast. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Art19, Google Play, and of course, the Believe website, com. Like, download, subscribe, rate, comment. All greatly appreciated. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at NYFootballPod and at Tino Rodriguez. We had an exciting and action-packed weekend of sports. Spring training kicked off the interesting start to the MLB season. We also had some primetime boxing action as Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury squared off in a rematch for the Heavyweight Championship of the World, which Tyson Fury would end up winning via seventh-round TKO in what was a boxing match that was a dominant performance from uh, from Fury from the beginning. Um, he injured him in the second round with a hit to the ear, which then resulted in a bursted eardrum, and just kind of set Deontay Wilder on a downward spiral. But, We have baseball news, boxing news, and of course, the NFL Combine is now right around the corner as it is set to kick off on Thursday. And along with an action-packed week of sports, we have an action-packed show for you guys. We have the host of the Believe in LA football podcast and a credentialed XFL Wildcats reporter, Ryan Dyer. The Don himself coming on the show to recap and talk about the upcoming Guardians versus Wildcats game here at MetLife Stadium with the NFL Combine knocking at the door. I decided to recap the Jets and Giants 2019 draft classes on this edition of the New York Football Podcast. I also discuss Gang Green's interesting signing over the past weekend, and I talk about Army announcing their spring schedule. But to start... Let's go no further but to talk about the New York Guardians' disappointing two-game losing streak as they lost a recent game to the St. Louis Battlehawks on the road on Sunday, 29-9. And before I get into some of the negatives from the Guardians as they failed to touch double digits for the second consecutive game, let me just start by saying, shout out St. Louis. St. Louis football is back in St. Louis since the St. Louis Rams turned into the Los Angeles Rams. Four years ago, I'm sure the people of St. Louis are happy. Well-deserved win, well-deserved turnout for their home opener, uh, and they dominated from the beginning. This game was won by halftime. Uh, It resulted in the Guardians benching their quarterback, Matt McGloin, for the second consecutive week. But let's just start by possession by possession. So St. Louis started the first drive going right down the gullet into the grill of the New York Guardians' rush defense, which last week I talked about on this show, as great as the Guardians' passing defense was, that rush defense was going to be extremely vulnerable against arguably the best rushing team in the XFL, and right on the first drive, it was very clearly that. They scored a touchdown right away. Um, Matt Jones did most of the heavy lifting, breaking a 47-yard run out, and then Christian Michael would then Cap the touchdown drive off with a 17-yard scamper, or a 14-yard scamper, sorry, uh, and he muscled it through. So not only was the New York Guardians vulnerable when they had two high safeties, but on the Christi- uh, Christine Michael run, they had nine in the box. They had one high safety, who was pretty much in the box anyways, and one corner spread out wide and still wasn't enough. Michael just ran right through the gut. Despite a little backfield motion, Michael ran right through the gut and was able to just spin off tackles, and he wanted it more. And he got in, and they set the tone immediately. They set the tone immediately, and after that, New York just continued to shoot themselves in the foot. New York's drives for the first half, and this may be jumping the gun, but let's see. Punt, field goal, punt. Fumble interception halftime. They had 25 plays, 75 total yards, five first downs. In that first half, they also had a running into the kicker penalty, unnecessary roughness, and just were playing sloppy. They trailed by 23 to 3 at half. And really, what opened this game up was one of the most exciting plays of the weekend and one of the most exciting plays of the XFL so far. After the Guardians put together their most successful drive of the first half and cut the lead to 6-3, to three, the Battlehawks wasted no time answering the bell. We saw the very first XFL kickoff return by Keith Mumphrey on just an electric reverse. It went for 84 yards, uh, several broken tackles. They thought he was out. He stayed in. Uh, just awesome. It was just awesome awesome. Uh, Even as a supporter of the Guardians watching that, you just saw the entire stadium in St. Louis losing their minds. I mean, the entire XFL community was losing their minds because we finally saw that this different kickoff return can work. And not only did it work, it was a game-altering play because in a game where all these different Numbers are being thrown around, and the the missed conversions made that game a field goal game. They answered right away, extended the lead back to another touchdown lead, which the Guardians wouldn't even end up finding the end zone until the fourth quarter. So by taking the life out of the Guardians that early into the game with just a momentum-changing play just proved that this kickoff— is the real deal. And it's something that the XFL really has working in their, you know, in their advantage. It's something that's drawing a lot of interest, a lot of excitement. And if there's more and more kickoff returns and less injuries and concussions on the play, this is something that down the road, the NFL are going to have to realize is a thing that needs to change. Whether they decide to mirror it in the same exact way the XFL is doing it, I'm not sure, but if it saves injuries and can prove to be explosive and exciting just as much as the normal NFL kickoff can be, there's no reason that they shouldn't implement it in every level of competitive football, but now moving past the kickoff, New York was still in the game. It was still possible to get back in that game. And they didn't allow themselves to do that. How did New York answer the kickoff? A three and out. Negative 12 yards. Two ugly penalties. And just shot themselves in the foot. And how did the Battlehawks respond to that? They had a field goal. And then when the Guardians took over again, what happened? Another three and out. But this time, the punt was blocked. And the Guardians were sloppy. The punt block resulted in what would be a Battlehawks touchdown. And on that Battlehawks touchdown, there was actually an interesting two-point conversion uh, that was converted, uh, an interesting play. It was another double forward pass. And I think out of all of them, from what I've seen, uh, I'm not too much of a fan of the wide receiver screen, to the next pass just because I think it's too telling. But when they bring him over in jet motion and he gives them that little touch pass in front and it looks like they're running the jet sweep and the players and the linebackers have to step up, if a cornerback or the safeties have their eyes in the backfield, it's going to work every time because you saw it on the two-point conversion work like a charm. The double forward pass really worked effortlessly for them. So the block punt, Happened with the Battlehawks up 15-3. to And it all just went downhill from there. They had a touchdown. And then the Guardians would have a chance again at the end of the first half to finally get in the end zone. And Matt McGloin just couldn't get the job done. Now, efficiency-wise, it wasn't terrible. He was 8-11 of for 84 yards in that one half. But his interception to end the half was not good. He overthrew his guy, pretty much just aimed for the end zone, and threw it right into the safety's hands. And so as a result, they benched him after the first half. And now, again, he was much more efficient, but the issue is nothing got going. It was very stagnant, and as a result, they had to move forward. Now, whether that's going to be a permanent thing, I'm not too sure, because... New York went down to three quarterbacks in the game. Everybody got a touch. And it's not to say it was McGloin's fault. In the second half, their possession chart isn't much better. It is not much better at all. Punt, turnover on downs, turnover on downs, and finally scored a touchdown. In the second half, they had three red zone drives, well, counting the last drive, on interception, three red zone drives, zero points to show for it. And if you look at this box score, you watch the game, all over, it just screams, the Guardians beat themselves, way more than the Battlehawks beat them. And now, that's not to say, I think, if the Battlehawks really wanted to, just continue to ground and pound, and just really wear out the Guardians over time, I'm sure they could have won that way as well, if this game was competitive, especially with the energy at home. But, You're leaving empty drives. And whereas the Battlehawks aren't even getting into the red zone, but they're kicking these 58 and 51-yard field goals, converting them, not leaving points off the board. New York was playing from behind, have struggled so much on offense, they didn't get a touchdown until the final six minutes, where Austin Duke scored a nine-yard touchdown. Duke, by the way, four receptions, 43 yards, not a terrible game, but there is... No offensive standouts for the Guardians right now, as McGloin is stuck in the mud. This offensive line allowed three sacks and have been committing penalties. And right now, the Guardians are struggling for answers, at least on the offensive side of the ball. So New York is going to have to do a lot of soul searching this week. But fortunately enough, they will return home where they had their first and only win of the season back in week one. And they're going to host an L.A. Wildcats team that may mirror a similar record, 1-2, and two, but just won their first game and seem rejuvenized. They just handled the D.C. Defenders, picked off Cardell Jones four times, and look to be turning a corner. So it will be no walk in the park come Saturday we're going to take a deeper look into Saturday's matchup with the LA Wildcats as I welcome on a good friend, Ryan Dyerd. He is the host of the Believe in LA Football podcast. He's also a credentialed XFL Wildcats reporter, and he's going to break down the Wildcats current 1-2 and 2 record, how they've gotten there. And some things we're going to want to keep an eye on in terms of the matchup for Saturday as we head into week four of the XFL season. So here he is, Ryan Dyard. California, love All right, I got my good friend Ryan Dyirood on. He is a credentialed XFL Wildcats reporter. He's also the host of the Believe in L.A. Football podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network, as well as the CEO and creator of the L.A. Football Network. Did I get that right, Ryan? Yes, sir. That works. Nice. All right. (laughs) Solid. So big game coming up for two of the bottom teams in the XFL this week. Uh, We got the Wildcats at one and two, the Guardians at one and two. Prior to this, we kind of talked about how neither of us on the opposite coast has been able to see the other team all that much. So uh, for those who don't know about the Wildcats, why don't you get us informed on kind of their quarterback situation here with Josh Johnson, why they didn't start out with Johnson at quarterback and why he's thriving so much right now. Yeah, man. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Love, uh, just love talking football in general.
1: Um, But, and I'm going to try to be non-Homer and as subjective as possible. (laughs) But if I'm being honest, I feel like these are two teams, even though they have the same record that are trending in very different directions Um, obviously that's, you know, simply put Wildcats won yesterday while the guardians uh, lost, but just the way the Wildcats won and playing a team like DC, who is projected as the top team in this new XFL league. And then the Wildcats come and just dominate in every facet of the game winning by a total score of 39 to nine. Um, but they really blew the doors off the defenders. Whereas the, you know, the guardians and you could detest more to this. I feel like have kind of unraveled a little bit since that first win, um, they got, but you know, speaking of Josh Johnson, he didn't play week one just due to injury. Um, he actually missed all of training camp due to injury, um, and then in the second week before his first start, he was limited in practice, so really just didn't have a lot of reps. So missed that first week. Second week was able to start, but you know, Rusty wasn't on the same page with a lot of his receivers. You could see that throughout the game. Just a few miscues, a few missed throws. So after a full week of practice, they're really to put it all really able to put it all together. Yeah, uh, yesterday. And, and really, he came out, I think, through for over 250, a um, couple touchdowns, really looked just lean and good, and uh, hasn't even really gotten the the running game going with his legs as he is an athletic guy. But overall, I think this team you know is poised to kind of go on a little run here. Um, the offensive line has looked good. They were also missing their, their starting running back yesterday, and Elijah Hood out with an injury, and they didn't miss a beat. You know, Martez Carter, who was listed fourth on the depth chart. And that's what I love about this league, is these depth charts really mean nothing because of how yeah knew it is and all these players uh how they're all just kind of meshing comes out and scores three touchdowns and just absolutely dominates and he looked like he'll be the starter but even coach moss after the game said no we're just going to keep doing running back by committee which all those fantasy guys out there love but um it's a team coming together defense looked great um so you know roundabout way not to take too much time on it i just think it's a a team at one and two that is trending in the right direction
0: So you saved me on a lot of questions. Uh, You gave us a nice (laughs) summary on the Wildcats, which I appreciate. I started with Johnson just because I think uh, as a Guardians, as Guardians fans out there, as well as someone covering the Guardians can tell you, we have Matt McGloin, more of a household name like Johnson is, and he's been teetering. So I think a lot of these teams in the XFL, and uh, we had talked about this prior, you see a guy like PJ Walker, the quarterback position, if you got a guy who's lighting it up and can do multiple things and not just sit in the pocket, in the XFL where there's just offense going everywhere and you got double forward passes, it helps. And someone mm-hmm. like McGloin, you know, and it's not, it's not all McGloin. I will say that because like you said um, you got some guys coming on for your team. I think your receivers are in a good spot. You got Nelson Spruce. I think you got uh, Trey McBride pulling up out of nowhere. Whereas the guardians are really lacking uh, another go-to guy offensively. I think Matt McGloin's the name, but there's really no supporting cast there. Whereas LA, man, you, you did light DC up on fire. Last week on this show, I actually was talking about, I was like, the defender's defense is real. They, mm-hmm. they had six total turnovers going into that game and they had none against you guys. And I think that says a lot because they made the Guardians, I, they might've been responsible for the Guardians downward spiral. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if you saw the, uh, McGloin had a halftime interview. Yeah stirred some controversy. He's like, we got to change everything. And he was again, benched at halftime. So I don't know if that's coincidence or not, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, you guys really made that defender's defense look normal. And not only that, uh, I think your defense really showed up this week from what I saw. I, uh, I will fall on the sword here. I said that the Wildcats defense looked very easy and, uh, penetrable, uh, two weeks ago against Dallas, uh, they allowed like over 400 yards total offense, but I will admit when I'm wrong, <laughs> five turnovers, four picks against Cardale Jones, who only had one interception prior. So hey, tip of the cap for you guys. Uh, I think the guardians are in for a treat this week when they host you guys. Now, my question to you then is, do you think the East coast trip is going to affect you guys in any way? Yeah, that's always a, an interesting kind
1: of dynamic or an interesting caveat when uh when projecting these games or looking at them i you know i personally these guys are professionals i don't think it should both teams are both on a short week after playing sunday and now they play saturday next week um so you can you can play into that but um i i don't really think it will have too much of an effect it shouldn't it's uh what, what do we got like a 2 p.m kickoff so it's not like a super early game i think um you can yeah, correct me no, if i'm you're, wrong you're, there but, off the top of my head But then not,
0: now you look at it west coast time a yeah different. at 11 a.m so yeah a little different
1: um they played at 12 p.m last week it'll be 11 a.m this week i guess or next week um but no i mean i i don't really think if it does then they have a, a number of other problems if that truly goes into into factor there um to, to just kind of touch on you you mentioned the defense um you know this was a team i don't know how closely you followed but with they had just so much drama going into two weeks ago mm-hmm. you know they fired their after one loss fired their defensive coordinator mm-hmm. their star captain of the defense, Anthony Johnson, they ended up trading away that same week because of uh, turmoil in the locker room and him not wanting to play if if the D coordinator, Pepper Johnson, wasn't going to be there. Mm -hmm. So going into that next game, there was just so much drama around them in the locker room with defensive changes, Josh Johnson finally getting reps. So they really were behind the eight ball going into that week, and and it showed the defense kind of came out fiery and then just fell flat in the second half, as you alluded to, allowing 400 yards. So this week, they were really able to get just They were truly Coach Moss's team. He's really able to implement everything he wanted to do. And, then, and they showed out with you know, four interceptions, a blocked punt. I know that's on special teams, but still kind of related. And uh, I think this defense identity is finally kind of showing through and what it's going to be. So it, it's good to get that drama out of the way. And then now they can look forward uh, as they do travel out east. And you know, we'll see if that has an effect on them at all.
0: See, and you said that block punt, you know, it's special teams. I think the Guardian, and I don't know if you saw the game too much, I think the Guardian single-handedly brought this game out of reach this past week against St. Louis, mainly on special teams. Of course, I mean, the obvious kickoff return, the first in the XFL this season, Mm -hmm. it was awesome. It was electric, but still early. It was a 6-3 game. But then the following drive, they actually also had a pump block uh, or in two drives after the fact. Nonetheless, they had the pump block, and it resulted in a touchdown, and in a game like that where you have the punt rule where it gives you short field, if you create an even shorter field for some of these offenses, that's all you need. That's, I mean, it's all you mm-hmm. need. Right? And uh, they left a lot of points off the board. And, again, I think for the Guardians, they're just lacking an identity. And I think the good thing for the Wildcats right now is it's very clear what your identity is. And although he hasn't started running the ball yet, Josh Johnson seems like he's running the show there where Matt McGloin – and Kevin Gilbride seemed to have this like butting head kind of thing going on mm-hmm. where neither of them knows who has, a, who has the edge in the locker room and in the, uh, in the huddle, although they both know they're going to probably ultimately have to stay put where they are.
1: Yeah, well, so here's a, here's a question for you, Stephen. And uh, I'm curious your thoughts. So I'm not, I'm not saying this to Brian Horn, but I was actually on a, a show last week, last Monday, after Matt McGloin's little halftime uh, call out of the team. And I said – I think by next week we could see a new quarterback and we could see Luis Perez who was traded from the Wildcats to his guardian team as the new starter. Now, not saying it's going to be the starter, but he did come in for you guys and led a touchdown drive. Do you think there is actually a controversy or is, Matt McGowan still the guy at this point?
0: I, so you're right. So Perez was accurate when he came in, led the only touchdown drive late in the game and there was still six minutes left. So, I mean, it wasn't. Straight up garbage time. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, they were still coming back. So it was a legitimate drive against starters. So I, I give them credit for that because watching them the last two the two weeks, I, you know, you, if they get in the end zone in any way, shape, or form, it's impressive at this point. But nonetheless, I will say this about the quarterback controversy. Uh, once you have a quarterback overstepping the boundary of play calling, especially when you have a team where Gilbride's an offensive guy. He's not even calling the play, so you then have another layer with your offensive coordinator. And you take that one initial overstep, and then he gets benched. Then you keep him in the next week, and there's no results. And then he gets benched again. I think over time, naturally, there has to be. Now, I don't know if the decision comes right away in front of the home crowd this week, especially because that is where they got their last win and their only win. And McGloin did play well in that game. So it could be as simple. And like you said, they're professionals, so it shouldn't be that simple. But maybe yeah. the road and the adversity and all that stuff got to him a little bit and got to his head a little bit, and that DC game got over his head. But on the same note, I think if they make that switch one more time, or even if they started Luis Perez and he performed well this week, that could be it for Matt McGloin. I think you're right. I think that maybe not necessarily a controversy, but there is a battle for that position right now because – putting up three points and then nine points is not a result for success. Not in the XFL.
1: No. Well, and, and one little wrinkle too, obviously Perez was in training camp with the Wildcats. So playing against that defense, who knows if that gives a little edge if he were
0: to get the nod this week, uh, having, you know, going against his former team. No, yeah, absolutely. And, and at this point, you, and you could attest to this, switching the quarterback matters. In that first week on uh you just get a guy who just seems unready, uncomfortable in the pocket, your team lacks that identity. It's going to affect the way the rest of the team goes. Like the Guardians defense and I will say this and I wanted to touch on this cuz the Guardians defense is vulnerable to the run game. So, mm-hmm. uh when you're constantly behind on time of possession and a team can cap off the drive, then you turn to your quarterback to air it out and you're resulting in three and outs that defense is going to start to put the hands on the hips and start to suck their teeth and start to moan a little bit because it's like, granted, they're doing what they can and they're holding these guys to field goals. But if your offense can't get a simple first down to answer a drive or respond, eventually, you know, the team comes down with you. It's not just an offensive thing. So I think the Guardians are lacking identity and whether Luis Perez is the guy or not, you're right when you say... Could it provide them an advantage? For sure. This week, absolutely, especially in front of the home crowd. I just think it's a, it's an eyes to the TV kind of thing right now with the Guardians, especially being in this market. So I don't know if they're reluctant enough to sit in just yet. I'm not too sure. That mm-hmm. part I'm not too sure to say.
1: Yeah, you know, you'll know more. And I guess if they'll they'll say throughout the week about practice, what that changes, you know, you you mentioned identity, and I'm not trying to hijack your show here, Stephen, but just a yeah, kind do. of follow up question that. So you mentioned identity on offense, and you look at this Wildcats defense, and although they played tremendous yesterday, especially on the the scoreboard, they did give up 200 yards of rushing, and mm-hmm. that's a, that's what killed them the prior week against the Renegades. Also, was the rushing game. So it seems like they've been really good against the pass and the quarterback. They're able to get a lot of pressure, but that that defensive line is really folded against the rushing game. So how has the Guardians rushing game been? And maybe do you see them kind of changing their attack and, you know, saying, okay, McGloyne's still our guy, but we're not going to put him in a position to throw the ball 30 times a game. We're going to try to run as much as possible to exploit this Wildcats defense. No,
0: absolutely. So I had said earlier in the show prior to this interview that they have to get back to the, you know, the system or at least the script that they had, I was I attended the home opener, and it was very much that. It was run the ball, have McGloin go out and play action, convert the downs when he needed to, and have the defense play defense. It's kind of like that ground-and-pound, hard-nosed style of play, which worked against Tampa Bay. But it's not going to work against teams that kind of do it better than you, such as the defenders and the battle hog. So now I think the best way to attack – is against uh, against the wildcats is the run now i don't know how quickly they'll stick to that again because if they go down early mm. or you know josh johnson starts to put on a show i think they'll be very quickly back in the position they were in last week where they're going to try to air it out and do a little too much and i think that's when mcgloin has looked his most vulnerable i think when he's trying to do way more than he can do or um Outstretch those boundaries and take those deep shots downfield, he looks like a very mediocre quarterback, even for the XFL standards. I'm not sure if you saw his interception this week, but they had a chance to score. I believe they were on the 30 yard line or so and simple seam route, but completely overshot his receiver, essentially just threw a fair catch to the strong safety. And it's like, you can't, you can't be doing that. Yeah. You know, that, that's just yeah. a recipe for disaster. And so I think LA can easily dictate this game. And I think it's more on if the guardians are going to be able to set the running game up early, get McGloin comfortable off that play action and like give the defense. And again, I I like to keep highlighting the guardians defense because I do think they're sound, although they can't stop the run. I think they're sound enough that if you get them off the field and get them, get them a breather every now and then they'll be able to show up for you guys because I attended that first game and you saw there were sacks, forced fumbles, interceptions. It's just hard to make constant plays on the defensive side of the ball if you're on the field the entire time. You know, these guys, yeah. I mean, granted, they had training camps, but they're not as conditioned as they could be, you know? so. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I could very easily see um, the run game dictating this uh, game. But on that note, how do you feel the Wildcats running game will play against the Guardians because from what I saw, you guys haven't eclipsed sixty yards since uh sixty yards total rushing since the Houston game when you guys had ninety five yards. So do you feel you're gonna have the running attack to kinda counterbalance and shift the uh shift the weight?
1: You know, that's definitely a point of emphasis that they I think will try to improve on. Last week in week two, they came out of the gates and ran the ball I, I want to say five out of the first six plays and just could get nothing going. Um, and then basically abandoned the run altogether in the second half, even though it was a very close game uh, this week was kind of the opposite. They just said, all right, we have our technically our starting running back Elijah hood out. We're just going to come out and be very pass happy. They only, they ended up running the ball um, 26 attempts, but no other than Martez Carter, who had 11 attempts, no one had more than five outside of him. And uh, Josh Johnson had been airing the ball at 25 times. So I think it's something that they're going to, they want to, implement more they want to be more diverse but if the passing game is working and they're able to jump to an early lead and kind of play the strengths of their defense which seems to be against the pass if they can get that early lead going so the guardians have to be pass happy i think they'll be very happy um, with that game plan but i know norm chow wants to run a more balanced attack he kind of runs a a west coast spread Offense blend, if you will, um, but they do spread a lot of receivers out. Um, a lot of plays will have four wide, but they they can go power eyes sometimes. I and mean, there was a few plays. There was a touchdown where Martez Carter, who's a running back, lined up at fullback because of injury, and uh, Larry Rose was able to score a touchdown um, due to that. So they have a lum- number of different looks, but I it, they can't really point to one reason why the running game hasn't been effective as of yet. Um, but I think that's something that they'll address and work on. But at this point. With Josh Johnson being healthy and how he's looked, I think they're totally okay with airing it out 30-plus times if that's what the game calls for.
0: Well, my thought was, too, maybe this is the game where he starts to use those legs you mm-hmm. know, and make up the ground in the running game because, like I said, I feel like the Guardians' defensive line, uh, they're a little bit bigger than faster, if that makes any sense. they're mm-hmm. big guys, uh, it's one of the main reasons they've struggled to stop the run. I feel like these bigger guys are getting winded early. Uh, can't get off their blocks, and there's just these gigantic holes. It's the same reason they're lacking any pressure. It's Again, like I said, they've been struggling with time of possession. But I just think the Guardians need to have a good opening drive. I think Mm -hmm. they need to have a solid script mapped out, and that'll dictate a lot of what the game's going to be. Because I had talked about their series um, against St. Louis. Three and out is just cringeworthy sometimes. To start a game, if the opposing team comes out and at least kicks a field goal, let alone scores a touchdown and you go three and out and give them the ball back, just to grind you out again. Uh, I, I mean, I expect the New York fans to have a factor in this game and a bit of a home field advantage and hopefully help them figure things out on that opening drive. But if it is a slow start again, I would not uh, in true New York fashion, in true New York fashion, I would expect some boost to come out because zero points, then nine points, after putting up three scores the week before and the New York fans saw that, uh, I think they're expecting touchdowns this week for sure.
1: Yeah, as they should. How's the reception been out there? Obviously, us being in LA and New York, two of the biggest markets in this new league and yet probably two of the hardest markets to really you know, drive fan viewership. What's it, what's it been like
0: out there in New York? So from a gambling aspect, I could tell you this. Uh, Viewership-wise, I know people enjoy watching some extra football, especially because New York has three New York football teams and the Bills, the Jets, and the Giants. Going to week one, they all kind of united at MetLife Stadium and saw it. So I know multiple fan bases are invested, especially in that gambling aspect that I was going to touch on because people are just thirsty for football around here, especially Mm -hmm. in a market where legalized sports gambling is a thing. They're just – they want more. And the unfortunate thing is I know so many people who have bet on the Guardians the last couple of weeks. Hence why I'm saying they, there will be booze if the Guardians don't put back yeah. on the board. Because <laughs> uh, not only are these guys uh, emotionally invested, they're financially invested. And uh, that's, that's why the XFL is appealing that way. And that's why they have some of these markets targeted the way they do. Now, I have a counter question. In how is it having another LA football team after having two just kind of, shift on over into la just a couple of years ago
1: yeah you know i've talked about this a lot and obviously it's a a hot topic around the league and la has had the lowest attendance thus far um but th- everyone knew la was going to be an uphill climb um there's just you know it gets overstated and it probably gets annoying for people not in la to hear this but there's just so many options so much to do and i know you have that in new york too but um especially when it's february and it's 78 degrees outside like do you really want to go sit in the sun in a football game, or you know, go to the beach, go to the pier, yeah. yada yada yada. I mean, I obviously would love to be in a football stadium, and a lot of diehead die hard fans uh, would say the same, but if this team does win, they continue on the stretch, I think it's on a really good upward trajectory um you know i, I said week one, if they could get between thirteen and fifteen thousand, I think they would be ecstatic. I think that was the number they were shooting for, and they were right at fifteen thousand um yesterday, they were just a little under 13, so a little drop off, but you know, when a team's 0 and 2 brand new you would expect that. And after this big win, I think we'll see those numbers, uh, climb back up. So, you know, it's, it's a tough uphill climb. Um, I think football, a spring league can succeed here. I think it helps that we kind of mentioned pre-show that this is a team that did not move here. They were created here. Mm-hmm. So you, if you look in that stadium, there were Cowboys jerseys, there were Bronco jerseys, there were mm-hmm. Seahawks jerseys. there were all different NFL jerseys, but everyone was collectively there rooting for the Wildcats, which I think long-term will do a lot of good because what we've seen the Rams and Chargers do, even though I think they've grown in popularity, we've seen the struggles because of they play in the same league that so many people grew up rooting for different teams, whereas now you have the Wildcats, which is truly an L.A. team born here in the San Gabriel Mountains, and it's a team people can get behind. So as long as they, they continue to win and mm-hmm. do their kind of fan engagement and their marketing, what they're doing, the gambling aspects like you mentioned, um, if the fantasy football kind of grows, and especially if they're able to implement their own fantasy football style instead of some of the third-party sites, um, I think it's going to be just fine. Um, but yeah, if they can, if they can average that 15,000 for this first season, I think that's, they'll take that all day and then obviously grow from there. Um, as this league progresses,
0: you know, with that said, um, I was watching the St. Louis game this week and, uh, wow. I mean, I, <laughs> I felt for them. I, I, cause you can touch on that because you have the Rams now and they yeah. don't. And, uh, it was a four year wait for them. And that stadium was electric. Yeah, it was electric. So I feel like uh, to compare it uh, where New York and LA have all these teams and we're uniting fans, I feel like St. Louis, all just these old Ram heads just desperate for some more football action. And it was just – that was their home opener. And it was just crazy to see the response and just seeing the show that they put on. Like I wasn't – a part of me wasn't even like upset. The Guardians were, lo- were losing the way that they were. It was just like, all right. Like, this is what happens when football goes back to St. Louis.
1: Yeah. No, you got to be happy for those fans. Uh, obviously, the Midwest in general, Kansas City, St. Louis, Denver, anywhere in the Midwest, those are football towns. Uh, those are just sports towns in general. And so you got to be happy for those fans. But, I, I, you know, touching on the Rams, per se, I know, obviously, they started like a Cronky Sucks chant, which, hey, good for them. Have fun with it. Uh, he did take <laughs> the team. But when he bought the team, the writing was on the wall. Uh, it was always basically known that unless he got a new stadium, which is ironic because he actually paid for his own out here in LA, but most likely he was going to be moving the team back to LA where they originally uh, were since the 1940s. So, you know, it's unfortunate for them. They lost a the team, but you know, they kind of sheepishly got a team to begin with 20 some odd years ago. And then when Crocky bought them, it was like the writing was on the wall. They'd be leaving. Uh, but it's good. They got this, this new battle Hawk team. And in fact the BattleHawks are playing well, Jordan Tomu looks like one of the better quarterbacks in the league. Um, speaking of that, the combine started next weekend and you know, he looked great at the combine. So happy for him. Um, but yeah. I think they will be, I think they will be a staple in this league because of what they mean to that city of St. Louis. And it's just, it's just a different onset for New York and LA fans compared to anyone in the Midwest.
0: Well, I love their style of play too. Mm-hmm. There's one thing I saw with St. Louis and their Houston, I feel like is above shoulders better than, a majority of these teams in the league. And granted, I feel like I said this about the defenders and they quickly proved me wrong. But as of now, I think Houston (laughs) is definitely that offensive explosion that it's going to be very difficult for teams who are inconsistent on the offensive side of the ball or don't have a staple at quarterback to keep up. Whereas St. Louis does have a quarterback who can pull it and throw it when needed. Uh, They have a a creative enough offense to uh, keep defenses on their toes. And they're the best running team in the league. Matt Jones leads the league in rushing. And I think in a, in a league where it's a lot of showmanship and teams don't actually want to put their uh, shoulders down and square up and wrap up to tackle, if mm-hmm. you are the best running team in a league full of that, you're going to be in good shape. And I think a lot of teams are not going to want to play you. And if St. Louis, you know, come postseason time, if they're hosting these games with that fan base and that type of offense, could really uh, turn some heads, I think, down the road.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as well as anyone, being a New York guy, Matt Jones had some, some good years for the Redskins mm-hmm. uh, in the NFL. So, I mean, he's, he's definitely a, a big-name guy, a good guy. Christine
0: Michael, too, another yeah. NFL guy. That's it. Yeah. So, and, and you know what? That's just a good structure to the team. They knew what they were trying to do when they, came, uh, when they started drafting, when they brought on the coaching staff, and, you know, hat off to them because it's working. It's working right now, and I think – for Houston, they knew they were going to throw the ball. And you see that with Cam Phillips, Sammy Coates, you know, P.J. Walker. They're putting on a show. They're putting on a show. And I think for the XFL, that's great news. It's just more of a finding a balance because I think the Vipers this week started to show some life. The Guardians are starting to show a little life. But uh, having consistent competitive play through those eight teams, I think, is ultimately what the XFL is rooting for and hoping for. Because like we said, I think uh, – they're just looking to get all viewership and all fans in the she- fans in their seats as possible.
1: Yeah, if they get in the season with all eight teams right around 500, I think they'd be happy because that just shows parity in the league. There's not one dominant force and one dumpster fire. Um, obviously, got an uphill climb when you look at the Vipers and some other teams who uh, need to need to climb back up the ranks. But like you said, they did show some life last week and actually put up points on the board, uh, which they haven't done in you know the first two weeks. So, and I think um, what
0: the Wildcats did was huge too, because again, like. That's just transparency through the league. The 0 2 team can beat the 2 and 0 team. And I yep. think that's something any football fan would turn on and try to watch. And I think that's something the NFL lacked, uh, you know, at times down the stretch of the season. I mean, early on, sure, teams are always going to compete. These guys have paychecks to make. But I think the good teams were reluctantly beating those bad teams. Whereas if you have the XFL and there's a team actually going out there winning any given Sunday, mm-hmm. all fans all across will watch that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Oh, well, thanks, Ryan, for coming on. By the way, I did have to ask you, the Don, is that you, you gave yourself that nickname or people gave you that nickname? <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so when I first uh, started LAFB Network, it actually was under the name Sports Al Dente. I used to work in an Italian restaurant. Okay. Um, so I, thought, I thought that was kind of a clever name for fun. And uh, because of that, my co-host at the time, um, we were trying to think of different names for our show. And because of the Italian roots, I am Italian as well. Nice and he was like well, you're he's like, well, you're the boss of the website and you're Italian. So why not just go with your nickname as the Don? So we originally had the show, the coach and the Don was our name. So that's where that's that. So technically he kind of gave it and I just kind of ran with it and have rolled with it since.
0: Solid. Yeah. Well, so I go by Tino. Uh, I go by pretty much anything in real life because I tend to just turn around to anything like a dog, but Tino is just my middle name. And uh, I guess technically uh, my parents gave it to me, but I did not give that one to myself either. So yeah, that, you, you don't tend to pick your nickname, but uh, yeah. I think you got a pretty solid one is what I was going to get at. It's not a bad, uh, not a bad choice. Well, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I guess we'll talk after the game on uh, Saturday. Sounds great. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll definitely be in touch. A big thank you to Ryan for coming on today's show. That interview with Ryan DiRude was brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? All right, we're going to stay in professional sports, but switch over to the Giants and Jets as the NFL Combine is set to kick off on Thursday. I thought it'd be a good idea. If we look back at the track record from last season on what these current front offices could do or what our teams can expect us to do in terms of efficiency and uh ready-to-go players in terms of draft capital. And for these two teams, it is drastically different. When I sat here and broke down, and even looked back to years before 2019, but really focusing on 2019, these are two teams that were in similar positions, although the Giants needed to draft a quarterback for the future. There were a lot of holes everywhere. And the Giants found themselves in a position where... They found a lot of bang for their buck. A lot of these young guys, the Giants took, and they had a lot of draft capital last year, starting with three first-round picks. So in the Jets' defense, you know, once you start with three first-round picks, you're going to find guys that are ready to play right now, of course. But the Giants also found game usage out of their third, their fourth, their two-fifths, and a sixth-round pick. So we're going to dive into the Giants first. And then I'll break down the Giant, uh, the Jets' six draft picks and get into a little bit of what they're doing this offseason. But for the Giants, let's start with the obvious, Daniel Jones. Now, other than Jones missing three games because he was sitting behind Eli Manning, the Giants would have had all four of their first, round, uh, their first four draft picks to play 16 games this season, which is very interesting and very telling to where this team was at last year and how young we were and how inexperienced this team was and it was showing because we only won four games but now with jones of course i think his low light is the fumbles six fumbles three lost but he was also sacked 38 times so my thought is a lot of that is inexperience as well as poor offensive line play And I think if you get your offensive line to shape up around him a little bit more, those numbers get a lot better. Um, But he still managed to throw for over 3,000 yards passing, 3,027 yards, 24 touchdowns to just 12 interceptions, and accumulated 279 rushing yards and two rushing touchdowns. Obviously, his biggest game being the Buccaneers game and the Redskins game to end the season. But Jones played big time, shined When he needed to, although there were a lot of people giving him F scores coming out, getting taken uh, in the top 10 when people had him going in the second and whatnot. The Giants did their homework and got their guy, and Jones is shaving up to be well worth that investment. Now, as far as the other two first-round picks, it's a bit of a hit or miss. Dexter Lawrence, I think, showed a lot of promise last season. Two and a half sacks, 38 tackles, forced fumble, Four and a half tackles for loss. Solid. As a rookie, solid. He was our anchor, and he was playing for time with a lot of guys in that defensive line. And he learned on the fly, managed to play in all 16 games, and next to Davin Tomlinson was our best interior defensive lineman. Whereas for our other first-round pick, there is still a lot of work to be done. Because although we got game usage out of DeAndre Baker, he played 16 games. In those games, he was the guy being attacked. Like in the passing game, he was the one that quarterbacks and coaches were teeing up because he was inexperienced, especially early on in the season when he was opposite Janoris Jenkins. That was the place where opposing teams were targeting because he would either get penalized, especially with the new pass interference rule, I mean, Baker is a physical corner, and you heard that when he was coming out of Georgia. Physical guy, doesn't take shit, which is great. He just has to evolve his game. With that said, his physicality totaled him 61 tackles. That was six on the team. Two tackles for loss, eight pass defense. So not bad in terms of room to grow, Um, but he was a guy who was ready to play, he just wasn't at full form or up into the level position-wise as those other two guys. Now someone who played higher than his draft ceiling is our then third-round pick, the X-Men, O'Shane Jimenez, a 16-game starter and or a 16-game player. He didn't start all games, that's fair, but 16-game starter, four-and-a-half sacks, 25 tackles, five-and-a-half tackles for lost and he was a guy that came on a lot to the tail end of the season, especially in those Eagles games. I think he really shined the most in those Eagles games. Uh, But getting value out of your third-round pick like that, and you'll see as a comparison what the Jets were able to get out of their two third-round picks. What the X-Man was able to do is is a nice silver lining in the Giants not having a second-round pick last year. Because they got a lot of value out of the X-Man. I remember waiting for that pick. And there was a lot of value there. And for a team that lacked the pass rush, he's a young guy that you can look forward to this year. Especially as a role-playing guy, depending on what they do in free agency. Now to rattle off our fourth and fifth round picks. uh, You have Julian Love next, who played 15 games. And here's the thing. Going all the way down on all their draft picks, up into the sixth round, no player, aside from Ryan Conley getting hurt, who was taken in our fifth, um, played less than 13 games. Conley got hurt. He played four. But he led the team in terms of Nadja Norris-Jenkins, or players still on the team right now, with interceptions. He had two interceptions in one game. But so in the fourth round, we had Julian Love, 15 games, played one interception, 37 tackles, six tackles for loss, three-pass defense and a forced fumble, filling up the stat sheet, being playmakers, and really playing under a trial by fire. And so in a lot of these guys, if you're not getting the point, I have a lot to say about each of these guys, which shows how much they played and how involved the Giants' rookies were last season and why that's a great layer to what they could have this year as long as they're advanced and grown the right way under this new coaching staff. But nonetheless, you have Ryan Conley next, an undervalued guy out of Wisconsin, who may be one of our better linebackers this season. He's probably the best linebacker we have on our team, easily. Especially if you disregard the fact that we're most likely going to cut Alec Ogletree. So Conley, four games played, two in toes, one sack, 20 tackles, and two and a half tackles for loss. Now, the thing is, Conley, although he got hurt, would have shown signs of optimism if he wasn't getting outplayed by his fellow fifth-round pick, uh, Darius Layton, who was an absolute steal. Possibly the steal of the draft. Darius Slayton played in 14 games, led the Giants in both receiving and touchdowns. Well, receiving touchdowns. Seven, 740 yards. Eight touchdowns on 48 receptions in 14 games played. And his chemistry with Daniel Jones, and you, you saw, you can see on Twitter, on our Twitter account, at NYFootballPod, that those two had a rapport from the beginning, from day one, after they got drafted in spring ball and getting these guys ready for the summer. Being a part of the same rookie class is that unsung chemistry a team can really build on. And lastly, Corey Corey Ballantyne, who played in 13 games, 26 tackles, two-pass defense. Now, Ballantyne played more like a six-rounder, but still showed up on the field and showed up in the stat sheet. Ballantyne was a little lost out there at times and was asked to play multiple positions. But is a guy that, again, is a building block. Whereas the Jets didn't really give themselves those building blocks last year. If you look at it, so they also were without a second round pick, but had as high as the third overall pick. And what they decided to do with that third overall pick was Quinn and Williams. Now, Quinn and Williams was in a Leonard Williams situation, and it's why the Jets are in uh, the predicament that they're in in terms of depth, because they are very well known for taking those high defensive linemen when they're in the top 10, and... They did just that with Quinn and Williams, best player available on the board, as many said, but got off to a very slow start, missed some reps early into minicamp and get into training camp and uh, only played 13 games a season, didn't play the full season, but came on late in the year and was able to muscle out two and a half sacks, 28 tackles, six tackles for loss and a fumble recovery. But as the third overall pick, that's an underperformance. Again, you expect, like I said, the Giants had three first-round picks. You expect guys ready to come in and play right away. And Quinton Williams was ready to play right away. But when you're taking as high as three overall, you expect an immediate impact kind of guy. That's why Daniel Jones was getting the criticism at six the way he was. So Quinton Williams has a big year ahead of him. But I don't blame the Jets for taking him. It's just, with what they had on their roster, just... Makes you think sometimes why they always get themselves in that situation. But moving on, after Williams, the Jets then had two third-round picks, one of which they cut, and one of them ended up getting some reps at right tackle. Chuma Edoga, shout out to me pronunciating that, uh, played eight games, started most of the time due to injury, but played eight games and was a sparing part For the Jets on the offensive line. And could be something they utilize this season if he grows into himself. Especially with the offensive line troubles that they have. Depending what they do in the first round. If they don't go offensive line, you're going to see him try to get some reps. Or you're going to see him involved. But if they decide to go offensive line, then it could be a competition type of thing. Where it just makes them better. But nonetheless, after that, I think one of their top picks in terms of usage was Trevon Wesco. 16-game usage. He's a blocking tight end, didn't really do anything that pops off the stat sheet, but a young guy who played, who saw action, finished with only two receptions for 47 yards. But you got some usage out of him. But after that, the next two guys, your fifth and sixth round picks, only saw the field for seven games. Blake Cashman, linebacker, 40 tackles, which was good enough for eighth on the team, and that was only in seven games for an injury-ridden Jets linebacker season. So he's definitely a building block in terms of help on the defensive side of the ball, but how does he work into the mix when C.J. Mosley comes back? You know, do they make that a good problem to have? Lastly, you got Bless Austin. Shout out to RU. Scarlet Knights alum ended up getting seven games of action again due to injuries and just uncertainties from the Jets secondary saw the field for seven games 25 tackles four pass defense and a forced fumble so the Jets made usage out of their uh, fourth through sixth draft picks they got them onto the field and they got what they could out of them but now in my opinion that second to third round range where you're really going to find a lot of those first round evaluations falling the Jets dropped the ball so if I were to give the Jets a grade overall on what their 2019 draft class was, I'd probably give them a C plus at best. Whereas the giants seeing what all those guys could do on a field, give them a B to a B plus. Now I'm not going to go out on a limb and say a minus a because B's and C's get degrees. But I think there's the high B plus ceiling is fair when you look at what Slayton did with Jones and that duo, you have Dexter Lawrence, the X-Man, Ryan Connolly coming back, and secondary pieces where, yeah, the Giants' secondary struggles, but you do have young guys there already that can continue to grow and learn and figure it out. Whereas the Jets have some guys that are head-scratchers in terms of what they're going to do for this team moving forward. Where is Cashman going to play when Mosley's there? Are they going to utilize the fact that he saw the field and was a, was a strong tackler and was a physical player, or are they going to play towards the guy they're paying more money for, C.J. Mosley, which will probably happen. Then you got a guy, Trevon Wesco. Okay, you drafted him in the fourth, though, just to be a blocking tight end. I'm not saying blocking tight ends don't get paid. I'm not saying they don't have value, but you just paid Ryan Griffin, And you have Chris Herndon, and these guys are going to see the field. So where does Wesco play in? And you took him in the fourth. You already cut one of your thirds. And Odoga may or may not see the field or have to compete for a spot, depending on what happens with their injury situations, who they add and drop, and who they draft. And then hopefully, Bless Austin could come around for the Jets. But my point being, I think the Giants got way more out of their draft class than the Jets, and that's a very obvious sign, especially in terms of game usage. You see it right off the bat. But staying in professional news, the Jets did make a splash. New York signed a former first-round pick to the Washington Redskins and wide receiver Josh Dotson. Dotson played three seasons with the Redskins, catching 81 total receptions for 1,100 yards, eight touchdowns. He was hurt his rookie season, but his best season was 2017 where he totaled 502 yards, 35 receptions, and 6 touchdowns. Now, Dotson had an interesting time in Washington and by most measures underperformed, especially for a first-round pick, which then resulted in him being cut and picked up by the Vikings this last offseason, suited up one game with Minnesota last year, and was cut, hasn't seen action since, and... The Jets are kind of taking a buy low, sell high, or low risk, high reward kind of thing. And I like the signing. Depending on what Robbie Anderson does in this offseason, the Jets could use a guy with the ceiling of Dotson. It's as simple as that. Because getting a formal first round pick, whether it pays off or not, is worth the gamble, especially for a team that is lacking depth at the wide receiver position. So... The Jets are already busy making moves. I expect the Giants to be involved very early and often in this free agency. But in the meantime, both Giants and Jets fans can be glued to our TV screens over this weekend. Watch them 40 times as the NFL Combine again kicks off on Thursday. Now before I wrap up the show, I just want to touch on some updates from the Army Black Knights and Rucker Scarlet Knights. Army released their spring practice schedule, which will start on March 21st. And will practice three times a week going through April 16th leading up to their April 17th spring game. Now over on the campus of RU, Ruckers didn't have much going on in terms of an update for football. However, the Rutgers basketball team has now lost two games in a row as we near the end of the season and have a huge game against number 16 Penn State this Wednesday. It'll be on the road. So again... Rutgers no longer undefeated at home as Michigan squashed their undefeated streak, but nonetheless, Joe Linnardi has them projected as a nine seed in March Madness. So, shout out to the Rutgers Scarlet Knights basketball team in closing out the season, and I am going to close out the show, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Again, you can follow us at NY Football Pod at Tino Rodriguez. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Art19, and the Believe Podcast Network website, BLEAV.com. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to download, like, subscribe, and rate. Talk to you guys next week.